at a crossroads, and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Habits. We've got good ones. We've got bad ones. But why? Turns out there is a science behind habits. And I'm excited to talk with Nir Ayal today. He's written a book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, where he's done years of research to unlock some of the secrets of habits for all of us. I'm Kip Bodner, and this is The Grow Show. You've started a few companies, and I'd love to just hear... What'd you learn? What was the hard thing about starting companies? We've got a lot of people listening to the show who are entrepreneurs, who are trying to grow their businesses. Tell, tell me what you've learned in your startup journey. Yeah, well, I, I think probably the most important lesson, and a lot of people aren't going to like to hear this, is don't do it for the money. <laughs> um, and that's, and I, I important. think it's a hard lesson to learn because I think the, the startup fantasy is that this is an amazing way to get rich and become a billionaire like Zuckerberg or Bezos. And um, you're just bad at math if you think that that's the case <laughs> because the odds of success are, uh, you know, maybe a little bit better than buying lottery tickets. However, um, it doesn't mean it's not a fulfilling thing to do. I just think people need to do it for the right reasons. And I have to admit that I think I did my first two companies for the wrong reasons. Uh, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm you fortunate in that. I did it for the money. <laughs> and I, I, mean, I learned the hard way that I think that's a mistake. But money helps. But no, I, I think in, all, in all jokingness, like, I think humans are bad at uh, properly assessing risk. And, yeah. you know, when you think about the risk and the downside around starting a company and building a company, you're right, it's immense. So if you, you did it for the money, um, yeah. But, so what'd you do? What'd you learn along the way? Did that mean you got sick of it because it wasn't something you were passionate about? Like, how that all play well, out? I, I think you know the, 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 it doesn't mean it's a, it's not a good thing to do. I just don't think you should do it because you think you're going to get rich. <laughs> Fair um, enough. I have a really good friend from college uh, who is probably the most talented person I know. I mean, he can play six different musical instruments. He does improv comedy. He's an actor. He's a, a composer. He's a writer. I mean, he is Show incredibly. Off. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> he can just do everything. It's amazing. He's written three books. Like he's an incredibly talented human being. He's always had this dream for as long as I've known him that uh, he wants to be a professional actor. So he went to Hollywood right out of college, and the way he, that he makes money is you know, oftentimes working in a restaurant. So. You know, I asked him, I was like, why do you keep doing this? You know, you're, you've been doing this for, for so many years. And he says, look, I can't do anything else. Like, this is what I do. I have to do this. <laughs> uh, I wish I could go get a, a, a desk job and that would be much, much easier. But this is what I have to do. And I think that that's exactly how we should look at entrepreneurship. Because to make it you know, Amazon style, to make it Facebook style, to make it, uh, you know, Slack style, a lot of things have to go right. A lot of things. And as much as we think, you know, we make this fundamental attribution error that if somebody succeeds because they're awesome and if somebody fails, they suck. That's just not true. There's a lot of things that have to have to go right, uh, to, to succeed in business and in life, but, uh, we can't base our whole 
future and self-worth on, you know, if I don't succeed, then it's not worth it. So I like this example that, that my friend said of, you know, you should really be an entrepreneur if that's all you can do. Okay, so fast forward. You, you did that. You learned some stuff. You, you learned it shouldn't be about, for the, about the money. And then mm-hmm. it seems like you kind of took a step back and was like, well, how do you actually do this? And so mm-hmm. you did, it seems like you did a bunch of research. You wrote, you wrote a book. So you've got a framework there about how you actually build great products. Like, what is that? And, and, and how you, how'd you get to the framework? Like, how'd you figure it out? So the segue, I mean, the, the silver lining of my last company experience, which was okay, that we raised a bunch of money from Kleiner Perkins, and we did, we did all right, nothing too special. But the, the silver lining to that uh, experience, which took up, what, four years of my life, so <laughs> that was the biggest cost. Um, the, the biggest benefit was that I learned a ton. Uh, and, and, and the reason I learned so much is because this last company was at the intersection of gaming and advertising. We were placing um, integrated ads into apps, but back then when I started this company, this was 2007, 2008, there was no such thing as, as apps in, in, on your phone. The Apple App Store hadn't been unveiled yet. Apps meant Facebook apps. And so I learned a lot being in the gaming industry. I learned a ton uh, about how gaming companies and advertisers manipulate people's behavior. And I was fascinated. I kind of had this, you know, the benefit of the company that we started was that I got to see thousands and thousands of experiments run through these campaigns and through these games. And I I started trying to figure out why would some campaigns and some games work and others would flop. And what I found was that there was some fundamental features associated with how these companies were changing user behavior that even these companies weren't aware of the deeper psychology of why these things work. They just know they did work. Right. They know that that competitor was doing it or it worked last time. So they kept doing it, but they couldn't really tell me, oh, this is, you know, this principle of consumer psychology. That's why this works. They didn't they weren't in touch with the academics. And of course, the academics, the psychologists, you know, they don't want to touch business. So, <laughs> so I was in this, this really interesting crossroads between uh, psych, the application, the practical application of psychology in business. And I wanted to come up with, just like an investor would, uh, an investment thesis, right? So every venture capitalist, every private equity investor, they have a thesis about what they think is going to be in store for the future. And then they're going to try and get ahead of that future by making bets and making investments that will pay off if that future happens. So I came up with my own investment thesis that I think that the companies in the future, uh, and by the way, this was in 2012, that the companies of the future that will dominate will be the ones that are able to form habits. And the reason, the, the, the main reason I came to that conclusion was that as the interface shrinks, as we went from desktops to laptops to mobile phones and now wearable devices and smartwatches, you realize that the, the screen size is just getting smaller. And that means there is just less real estate. There's less space to trigger people to tell them what to do. So that means if you're not top of mind, if you're not the first to mind solution that a, com- a customer thinks of, you don't exist. You're dead. Right? If you're not on the first if you're not on the first page of that home screen on someone's phone, you you might as well not even be in the world. You're right? wa- yeah, because you're wasting you're wasting your human capital. You're wasting your time. Exactly. Exactly. So if you're not a habit, especially when it comes to these devices that have very little screen space. By the way, I forgot to mention, you know, we talked about wearables and uh, smartwatches, and now with with uh, the Audible interface, right? When we think about Alexa and we think about Siri, now there's no interface at all. It's just a voice interface. Now habits really matter because we can't, we don't have the opportunity to trigger people with 
click here, buy now, do this, do that. They have to remember to do it on their own. So that's why I became so fascinated with habits is how does a company become a product that people use with no prompting, without a spammy message, without having to spend money on, uh, on ads? How do we use products on our own out of habit? How do you actually build habits? Like, what makes that happen? So, <laughs> so I, I spent several years uh, in the Stanford Library researching and talking to people in the field, academics as well as practitioners, and I, I went and did interviews at, at Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and all these companies that are so good at changing user behavior. And what I found was is that when I studied these companies, that there was a common pattern at the core of these products, both consumer-facing products as well as enterprise products. When you think about Salesforce or Slack or mm -hmm. GitHub, uh, these enterprise-facing products that are used habitually, they all have a common pattern. And before I tell you what that pattern is, I just want to enter a little disclaimer here. And I, I want to be clear, not every business needs to be habit-forming. Okay? You can bring people back to your business in lots of ways. You can pay for ads. You can do search engine optimization. You can have a physical storefront, right? You can open sure. up a taco stand and get people to come. But if you're the kind of company that needs habit, needs people to come to your product on their own, then you need this model. And this model is called the hook model. The hook is an experience designed to connect the user's problem to the company's product with enough frequency to form a habit. And hooks have these four basic steps, a trigger, an action, a reward, and an investment. And it's through successive cycles, through these four steps, that customer preferences are shaped and that our tastes are formed. So I can, I can walk you through these four basic steps and you can kind of see where they fit into many of the products and services that you use every day. Let's do it. Sure. So uh, every hook starts with a trigger. Uh, we're, what we're most familiar with, there's two kinds of triggers, external triggers and internal triggers. What we're most familiar with are the external triggers. So these are things, you know, calls to action, buy mm -hmm. here, uh, buy this, click here, uh, play now. All of these things are external triggers. They tell you what to do next. Now, that's the start, right? This is how companies get you to go through the hook in the first place. They, they provide this call to action. Next comes the action itself. This is where the behavior is manifested. So uh, scrolling on Pinterest or looking at your newsfeed on Facebook or uh, pushing the play button on YouTube, these incredibly simple behaviors done in anticipation of an immediate reward. That's what categorizes these, these habits. They're incredibly easy to do. So as a product designer, as someone who's building a product or service, if you're building a habit-forming technology, you've got to figure out how to make the key habit as easy as possible. The rule I give people is if the behavior isn't something people can do drunk, you haven't designed it well. Like literally, it has to be something that's so simple. Like, are we talking like hat. one beer or like a long night out? Like what's, what's the thinking, level thinking, of design quality? Well, it depends on your tolerance, but I'm thinking about, you know, maybe three, four beers. That's Got it. Kind okay. Of my okay. Bar. okay. Good to know. <laughs> and, and if you think, and if you think about some of the most habit-forming products out there, you can use them. You can figure out what the habit is being pretty intoxicated, right? <laughs> like look at Snapchat <laughs> or or or. Uh, I'm, they may have designed it that way. I don't, you know, I don't know. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But that's a good design principle for all of us. You know, if you think about uh, the iPad effect of how you know my mom didn't touch email, didn't touch personal computers uh, until the iPad came out sure. because it was so dramatically easier to use, and now suddenly we can't get her off it because it, it mm -hmm. kind of opened up this whole new world to her. So that's the principle around the action phase of the hook.
The next step of the hook is the, is the variable reward phase. So uh, it turns out, you know, of course, we have to give customers what they want. We have to reward them for coming to our service. But it can't just be a reward. It has to be a variable reward. So this, this uses some very interesting psychology that's, uh, that's, that's many decades old. It comes out of the work of B.S. Skinner, the father of operant conditioning. He found that when he put his pigeons in this little box and he gave them a disc to peck at, at first, every time they pecked at the disc, he would give them a reward. And he could very quickly train these pigeons to peck at the disc whenever they were hungry. Great. That's called operant conditioning. But then he did something different. He introduced a variable reward. So sometimes the pigeons would peck at the disc, but no food pellet would come out. The next time they would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was that the rate of response, the number of times these pigeons pecked at the disc, increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. And so that variability, that bit of mystery, that bit of the unknown works on humans almost as well as it does on pigeons. That the more mystery, the more intrigue that there is in a product, the more we are engaged in it. And it's like, who would have ever thought that pigeons would be the key to great product design, right? For everybody listening. I know, right? <laughs> but it turns out that there's a lot that we can learn from that, those variable reward experiments. All right, so variable uh, rewards, then, and then what's, so what's our final step? And then the final step, and probably the most overlooked, is what I call the investment phase. The investment phase comes after the reward, right? It's after the user gets what they want. Now it's time for the user to put something into the product, not necessarily for your benefit as a product maker. If people think it's just money, it's not money that's the only type of investment. In fact, it's probably the least uh, important when it comes to building these habits. The investment is where I put something into the product to make it better with use. And this is a really, really big deal, particularly when it comes to interactive products. What's so special about this ability to communicate with people over the web is that we can change the product in real time to meet their needs. So how does that work? When you think about the data you give a company, the followers you accrue, the reputation you build, uh, or the content you put into a site, those things make the product better and better with you. So if you were to log into my Pinterest account or my Facebook account, it actually wouldn't be interesting to you because it's been tailored based on my data. So that means that we can custom build these products so that they appreciate with use, not depreciate with use. If you think about things in the physical world, things made out of atoms, they lose value with wear and tear, right? Your furniture, your, your anything, depreciate your, your clothing, over time. they depreciate over time. But habit-forming technologies, think about this, they get better with use. And they do this because of the investment that customers make in them. So uh, accruing investment is very, very important to make the product better with use. That brings the customer back. The second thing that investments do is that they load the next trigger. Loading the next trigger is when something I do with the product prompts me to come back on my own. So, for example, when I like something on Facebook, when I follow someone on Twitter, uh, when I send a message to somebody on, on Slack or Snapchat or, or, or WhatsApp, the fact that I've invested in the platform and sent that message means that I will likely get a reply. And that reply comes coupled with an external trigger, which is where we started this whole path down the hook in the first place. Yep. And that external trigger prompts me to the hook once again. So that the ultimate result of these passes through the hook is that eventually, if I go through these hooks enough times, I start to form an association with what's called the internal trigger. And this is super important. 
An internal trigger is typically a negative emotion, a pain point. It's a negative emotional state that the user seeks relief from. And so if you are the company that a user turns to when they look to solve this emotional discomfort, that's when the habit is formed. So when we're feeling lonely, we check Facebook or maybe Tinder. When we're <laughs> uncertain about something, before we even scan our brain to see if we know the answer, if we're uncertain, if we feel that negative emotion of uncertainty, we're Googling. If we're bored, well, we can check YouTube or stock prices or sports scores, lots of these solutions to this internal trigger of boredom. So the goal here, the ultimate goal of a habit-forming product is to form an association with this negative emotion. But that's only done through these successive passes through the hook so that eventually you don't need any of these external triggers at all. Okay, so I get the model, and we talked a lot about habits. Uh, I'm sitting here, it's striking me that there also has to be some downsides to habits. Like, I think what happens when, like, Facebook changes its UI. Like, people lose their frickin' minds. Like, they just can't <laughs> take it. Well, they're like, whoa, yeah. no, no, like, my trigger, it was like right here, and you moved it, and I'm mad at you now. Like, right. How, so how do companies deal with that, and how, and how do you deal with evolution once you've kind of established a habit? It's, it's not easy. I mean, there, you know, habits can be a double short in that uh, once you have a habit, it's an amazing competitive advantage, right? Because think about this. Even if your competitor has a better product, okay, it doesn't matter. Because if you own the customer habit, they, your user doesn't even give the competitor a chance. Let me give you a, a great example to illustrate the point. If you think about how many of your listeners right now searched with Google in the past 24 hours. All of you, raise your hands. I, right, raise your hand. And now, if I ask the same question, how many of you searched with Bing in the past 24 hours? I bet you the ratio is maybe one in 100 Probably. that searched with Bing versus Google. So is that, is that because Google is so much better? Is the algorithm just so, you know, the geniuses in Mountain View just, just you know, knock the socks off of anything that Bing can do? No, it actually turns out that if you compare the search results, the third-party studies have done this, if you compare the search results head-to-head and you strip out the branding so that people don't know which is Bing and which is Google, people can't tell the two apart. It's literally a 50-50 preference split. The interesting thing is that Bing is so desperate to get your business, they will actually pay you. They have this program where the more you search, you get points every time you search, and that those points are, uh, are divisible into cash. Okay? They will pay you to search, but we don't even give them a chance. Even though it's as good, and this one we get money for, we don't even think to look for, for a better solution. It's just what we do. We Google it, right? That's the habit. And so that brings me to this cold, hard fact that it's not the best product that wins. There's no 11th commandment. There's no rule that says the best product wins. It's but is, not the best product. But doesn't wins. the best habit win? And like, if you have an existing exactly. habit, it's really hard to evolve past that. And so if somebody can come along and create a better right. habit, you're kind of screwed, right? Right, right. So that, that's the problem. And, it, and, and you mentioned it for yourself, too. If the user is in the habit of using your product a certain way, and then you change something in the, in the, uh, in the interface, uh, even if it's for the customer's long-term benefit, you're going to get some resistance there, right? So you have to make a calculated bet. So the trouble is, if you don't have the consumer habit, how do you get the customer's habit away. Well, that, that's not easy. <laughs> it's very difficult to do. It does happen, and there are some ways. We can talk about how that happens. There's three ways to do that, uh, but it occurs pretty rarely. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's interesting, I think, in business. It's rare to have such a clear, 
opportunity for disruption that is just so hard to es- execute on in terms of building a better habit. Like that's a you're right, right. and that is a very hard thing to do. Right, and it sucks. I, I think it's it's very frustrating. Many times I meet with companies, and they tell me about all the amazing whiz bang things their product can do and why it's so much better than the other companies. Uh, you know, the the entrenched incumbents when they say, "Oh, we're going to take on Amazon, we're going to take on Google, we're going to take on Facebook." And let me tell you, there's it's very, very, very hard to do. Not because they didn't develop a better product, but because the habit is so entrenched. Yeah, and you know, the, the is isn't there also a like a flywheel effect to habits where once you have habits, then you have more data and you have more activity and you can right. basically learn faster and build product better and iterate and the gap between you and anybody who's going to try to catch up with you just gets wider and wider every day, right? Right, right. So that's the investment phase. Exactly. You, you nailed it. So the fact that every time I use Amazon, I'm giving them information, I'm giving them data about what I need and how frequently I need it and how price sensitive I am. All that data is making the product better all right let's switch gears a little bit let's take let's talk about the flip side of this which is as users of products everybody listening on the growth shows you use a bunch of stuff we've talked about today we kind of hate being relying on it and we Mm. struggle with like having to get our phones out all the time i know you've written about like you know how you've tried to stay off your phones your computer that that kind of stuff it's like how do you prevent these habits from from taking over your life and from being too dominant, you know, if you're the, the yeah. user. Yeah, so so the downside of habits uh, is that we are essentially doing things mindlessly, right? So that's the downside, is that we're not thinking about it. Uh, and sometimes that's a good thing, right? We, we do about 40% of what we do every day is out of habit, and we need that, right? Because we, mm-hmm. we, couldn't, we couldn't have any room to do anything else if every decision we had to debate over and intellectualize and think about, we just do things out of habit. So it helps us by and large. That's why we have this evolutionary trait. Uh, but then, of course, if we're not mindful sometimes with these behaviors, we, we can get into trouble. Uh, so so the, the lens I look at is... Uh, it's kind of this two by two. So if you think about is a product to you harmful or not harmful on one axis and on the other axis is can you stop or can you not stop? So if a product is something that doesn't harm you and you can stop that first quadrant, that's no problem, right? That's just any old goods and services, right? So like, uh, you know, a lot of these things we want, we don't want to use less. We want to use more of, right? We want to go to the gym more. We want to drink more water, use my meditation app more, whatever it might be, those things don't hurt me and I can certainly stop whenever I want to. So those things aren't a problem. Then you've got things that you can't stop using but aren't harmful. So for example, if you think about uh, necessities, food, clothing, shelter, you have to have these things, but they're not harmful in and of themselves. You just have to moderate your use so that you don't go overboard. You don't spend too much money on clothing. You don't eat too much food. So that's about moderating behavior. And most people, you know, we, our body gives us natural cues about uh, eating too much. We, you know, we budget. We take steps. Most people don't have too much trouble uh, moderating those kind of behaviors. Then you've got this other quadrant of behaviors that are harmful that you can stop. So, for example, I would put Facebook and YouTube and sugar for me personally. <laughs> by the way, this isn't – I'm not I'm not your classifying list. Yeah, your list. my list, right? Right. It's only your list. So I'm not saying that Facebook and sugar and YouTube are bad for everyone. I'm just saying for me, these are things that if I could snap my fingers and never use again, that would be great. But the problem is I like them, 
right? They're fun, they're, all, they're entertaining. They're, yeah, they're awesome. They're delicious. Yeah. So, so, um, so I use them, but to me, they're harmful. So in that category, we have to be careful, right? We do need to take steps. First of all, we need to assess. We, we need to figure out, hey, you know what? Is this, is this, is this harming me? Is this a product that is, is not helpful to me, that it's not uh, allowing me to achieve what I want uh, with my limited time on Earth? And, and if it is harmful, then we've got to figure out how to put it in place. And it turns out that, uh, that the vast majority of people find ways to, to deal with it. So there's all kinds of ways. And what I would recommend, what I do in my own life, is I take those very same four steps in the hook model, the trigger, the action, the reward, and the investment. And now that I know how these companies do it to me, I can break the hooks I don't want in my life. And so the way you do that is that you remove the triggers. You make the action more difficult. You delay the rewards, and you make sure you don't invest in these things that are not good for you. And so let me give you one quick example of how you do that. So uh, one of the best things I, I did when it came to breaking my bad habits is that I found that every night around 10 p.m., uh, it would be time to go to sleep, uh, and yet I wasn't able to because I was still on Facebook or still on email or still whatever okay. uh, on, on my laptop, and, you know, bad habit. So here's what I did. I went to the hardware store, and I bought a $10 outlet timer, and I plugged this outlet timer into my – I should say I plugged my internet router into this outlet timer so that every night at 10 p.m., my internet router shuts off automatically no I'll be like no wi-fi for you no wi-fi for me so so what does that do it makes the action more difficult it disrupts the hook now i could obviously go over there and unplug my wi-fi router and plug it back in and get power to it right yeah. but what i've done is to get a bit of mindfulness into this otherwise mindless behavior so that i can ask myself wait a minute is this really necessary right now is this more important than getting sleep and that momentary pause of, wait a minute, is this really important? Is this what I really want to do? Is enough for me to say, you know, 99% of the time, unless it's something super urgent and important, yep, this can wait until tomorrow. And so that's that, that third quadrant of things that are harmful, but you can, you can stop. So when most people say, oh, you know, Facebook's rotting my brain and Pokemon kids, all these, you know, <laughs> Pokemon Go is ruining our children, blah, blah, blah. I don't really buy it because unless it's a behavior that not only is harmful, but that you cannot stop, then it's really an issue of, of self-control. Now, there is one more quadrant, which are these products uh, and people, I should say, who find that using particular products is not only harmful, but that they can't stop using. And those products are addictions. And again, this is by, it isn't by the product, it's by the person, because yep. look, you know, lots of people are not addicted uh, to certain things, and some people some are, are addicted yeah. to things that most people aren't. Yeah, so, so that's a special category of, of person and product relationship where it really is an addiction. And so if you are that kind of person that has a relationship with a product that you say to yourself, this harms me, but I can't stop even if I want to, that's, that's an addiction. And, and, the, and the solution there is to get help, right? That, that requires some more extensive uh, assistance than most people are able to do all by themselves. All right, so 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 yeah, that? that was that was good. You you taught everybody how to break free of their late night internet habit. Um, <laughs> I think there's some, probably some similar similar ha hacks around sugar consumption, alcohol consumption, all the things that we all think you know about improving a little bit more, right? And and try and trying to get off. All right, so so you you've written this book. You've had this book out in, in a while, and I think one of the things that's interesting when you create anything, a book, a product, you're always surprised what people do with it or learn from it. 
What has surprised you? Like, what are the surprising feedback from all the... You've shared a bunch of stuff that you've learned. Now, like, what did you hear from the world that you weren't expecting? You know, I... I my hope in writing the book uh, was, was twofold. The, number one, the, the main reason I wrote the book was that as an entrepreneur, you know, building my own products and services, I know how difficult it is to build a product that people really do use, right? That's not easy. And so my number one intent with the book was to help people building healthy habits uh, do just that, right? Build these products and services that people want to use uh, to help them build these, these healthy habits in their lives. And the second reason I wrote the book, by the way, is kind of what we talked about earlier, is that I do believe the world is becoming a potentially more addictive place, and it behooves us to understand these tactics so that we can put technology in its place. So those are the two big reasons. When it, so what's, what's been a really pleasant surprise to me is, is to see how people use these tactics that came out of advertising and gaming uh, and have used those tactics for good. Uh, and there's, there's these companies, every, every time I see one, you know, that, that I believe incorporates this hook model uh, and, and builds healthy habits, I invest in the company as quickly as I can. Uh, and so one company I invested in was a company called Seven Cups that I'm, I'm quite proud of. So this, this company is fascinating. They uh, it started by a psychotherapist by the name of Glenn Moriarty. And Glenn it's, noticed that... This is like a Sherlock that, Holmes story, character. It's, it's hilarious. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, so Glenn called me up and he had this problem where he found that a lot of people who should get his services, right, who should come to him for therapy, mm-hmm. weren't, weren't able to. I mean, if you think about how difficult it is to get therapy... It's, it's pretty hard, right? There's, There's a lot of friction in it. Yeah. Time consuming. A lot of friction, exactly. So he says, look, I think this is a problem technology can solve. And so he told me about this idea for an app. He read the book. Uh, and he told me, he walked me through this hook that he had developed, which was when someone feels down, when those people need relief, they need someone to talk to. There's a lot of things they can do to get relief. And some of those things are not very healthy. He wanted instead for them to be able to get on the phone and talk to somebody who's there to help them. So he built this app. Whenever someone feels down, that's the internal trigger. The action is to just open this app, and you're instantly connected with another human being who's ready to listen to you. The variable rewards are these variable rewards of the tribe. There's uncertainty there. There's a bit of mystery. Who is this person? How are they going to help me? What are they going to say? That's the variable reward. And then the investment is fascinating. Here's where it gets really interesting. When you call and you, and you talk to somebody, you're also offered the opportunity after your call to learn how to be a trained listener yourself. Mm, and what's fascinating is that people get a lot better from this service. So the, there was a third-party study that was just published that found that Seven Cups was as effective as traditional psychotherapy, particularly for these people who are helping others, which is really amazing, right? How this service, you know, doesn't cost anything. You can connect to other people and get better yourself by helping others. At one app, through this healthy hook, services 180,000 sessions per week in 130 countries. So it's, it's really taken off. And, it's, and it's, uh, I love how people, you know, whenever I see examples of people using behavioral design and, and habits to change people's uh, behaviors for good, that, that really gets me excited. So that's, that's wonderful to see. That's awesome. That's a, it's a great story. And I, you know what I think a great note to kind of finish our conversation on, for everybody listening, again, Nier's book is called Hooked. If you want to learn more about his model and, and everything, Nir, thanks so much for taking a few minutes and, and talking us talking to us about habits today. It's been fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much.
refer a friend to subscribe to this podcast, and you can be featured in an episode. If you refer five friends to subscribe to the show, you'll get a shout-out in our weekly email newsletter. Refer 10, I'll give you a shout-out on our next episode. 20, you get a featured segment on the next episode. And if you refer 100 friends, you get the entire episode to yourself. That's right, 100 referrals, and you become the guest. Tell them to subscribe to the show in their favorite podcast app, then head over to bit.ly slash TGS Refer a friend to give you credit for the referral.